0: come to God's word. Father, we've just sung of our love for your people and also Christ's love for your people as well that we are the apple of his eye and our names are graven on his hands. We thank you that from heaven he came and sought us that we would be his holy bride. And We thank you that he lived and died and rose again, that that would be the case. And Father, now as we come to the words of our Lord Jesus, give us attentive hearts and minds, we pray, and equip us in this time to live for you in this present age as we wait for Christ's return. In his name we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, if I can invite you to take your Bible once again, please, and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 21 and verses 5 through 19. In our recent studies in Luke's Gospel, we've been seeing that all the recent action has centred around the temple. So back in chapter 19, verse 45, Jesus, you remember, has come to Jerusalem and he then entered the temple and drove out those who were selling there. And then all of chapter 20 uh, takes place inside the temple. It is the Tuesday of Holy Week and on that day we have seen all these different debates and discussions and arguments taking place between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, Jesus exposes, doesn't he, the futility of their rejection of him and the hypocrisy of their religion. And that is then put into stark contrast by this poor widow who in the temple lived this life of sacrificial devotion to God by giving all that she had to live on. And now in chapter twenty one, verses five and following, Jesus and his disciples leave the temple and they take the, the short walk over to the Mount of Olives. And yet the conversation, you notice, was still focused very much on the temple in particular and Jerusalem as a city in general. And as they leave the temple, the disciples marvel at the beauty of the architecture of this temple in which they have just spent the last little while. They look at the temple and it captivates them such is its beauty. And they cannot help but comment upon it. When I was at university many years ago now in Durham, Every single day for those three years whilst I lived there, I would walk past Durham Cathedral. And every single day, that building would just amaze me. I don't know, maybe some of you have been to Durham and you've seen it for yourself. But if not, you can take my word for it, that it is utterly beautiful. One writer describes it like this. He says, I paused upon the bridge and admired and wondered at the beauty and glory of this scene. It was grand, venerable, and sweet all at once. I never saw so lovely and magnificent a scene, nor, being content with this, do I care to see a better Bill Bryson in his uh, book Notes from a Small Island writes, I unhesitatingly gave Durham my vote for best cathedral on planet Earth. And I would agree uh, with him. It's that sense of gazing upon a building which is just so incredibly beautiful that it just stops you in your tracks every time you see it, even if you've seen it a thousand times. And it captivates you. And this is what had captivated the disciples on that day. They'd seen the temple. They'd just been there, and as they walked away from it, they glanced back and looked at it. And they were captivated by the beauty of this grand building. It was, of course, the second temple that had been rebuilt after the return from the exile. It had then been plundered and desecrated, By Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC and then three years later uh, by Judas Maccabeus it had been rededicated and cleansed but really it was Herod the Great of all people who really beautified this temple. Herod the Great had built new foundations for it he had enlarged the temple area to about twice its original size and spent years refurbishing this temple. In fact, the refurbishment was still going on in Jesus' day. Now just listen to how one particular historian from the first century, a man called Josephus, describes the beauty of the temple. He says, The exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astonish either the soul or the eyes for the exterior being covered on every side with massive plates of gold. The sun had no sooner risen than it radiated so fiery a flash that those straining to look at it were forced to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. The reason being that whatever was not overlain with gold was purest white, made out of marble. Another writer of a similar time says, he who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never in his life seen a desirable city. He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never in his life seen a glorious building. And of course, it was not just the physical beauty of the temple that made it so attractive to the disciples but as well as that it's god-given purpose this was the place where god had promised to dwell amongst his people in a special way a place where they could draw near to worship their god the place where the sacrifices for sin could be offered What a special place this was. And the disciples marvel at the temple as they walk along the road that day, glancing up at this magnificent architecture. And just in the middle of all this taking place, Jesus then says these words. He says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. Of course, it wasn't the first time that Jesus had said such a thing. Just a few days beforehand, when they were approaching Jerusalem, Jesus had looked over the city, you remember, as he looked down from the Mount of Olives, and he said, the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem, says Jesus, is going to face this devastating judgment of God. The reason for which is their rejection of the promised Messiah who was sent to them. The Messiah himself, visited them in person. And instead of bowing before him in adoration and in faith, instead they nailed him to a cross. And for that, they will face this devastating episode of God's judgment against them. And the words of Jesus here would be fulfilled in the year AD 70. The Jews rebelled against the Romans Jerusalem was taken by Titus who was the son of the emperor Vespasian and the temple was destroyed. And again, listen to how Josephus describes what took place. He says, the temple, however, God long ago had sentenced to the flames. But now in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived. One of the soldiers neither awaiting orders nor filled with the horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and, hoisted up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window. When the flame rose, a scream, as poignant as the tragedy, went up from the Jews. Now that the object, which before they had guarded so closely, was going to ruin. And as the disciples hear Jesus predicting and prophesying those very events about 40 years in advance, they are, of course, shocked by the very thought of the temple being destroyed. And somewhat understandably, they ask this question, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? It would be helpful for us to compare Luke's account of that question to Matthew's account of it. Because Matthew gives us a a bit more of a full account of that question. In Matthew 24, listen to how that question is relayed to us. Matthew writes, the, the disciples ask, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And you see, from Matthew's account, it becomes clear that the disciples assume that when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, he's also talking about the end of the world. They assume that God coming in judgment against Jerusalem would coincide with God coming in judgment against the whole world. They are mistaken in thinking that, putting those two events together. And one of the things that Jesus wants to spell out to the disciples in this ensuing discourse is that the destruction of the temple is not the end of the world. Uh, These two events are in some way related to one another, because they are both great manifestations of God's judgment against sin and rejection of him. But they are nonetheless separate events. Now, for us living today, that's obvious, isn't it? Because we live after AD 70. The temple has been destroyed, and Jesus has not yet returned, and the world as we know it has not yet come to an end. The end of the age has not yet arrived. But to the disciples back in AD 30, that wasn't obvious. For them, the destruction of the temple meant the end of the world. And so Jesus spells it out for them here, doesn't he? Yes, this destruction of the temple would be like the final judgment in some ways, but it is not the final judgment. It would be the end of an era, but it would not be the end of the age. Notice how Jesus makes that clear in verse nine. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place but the end will not be at once. And in the verses that we're looking at this evening, Jesus is telling the disciples about what life is gonna be like for them in the days leading up to and surrounding those terrible events of AD 70. Of course, Jesus didn't tell them when exactly it would be but he's teaching them concerning it nonetheless, preparing them for it, telling them how to live in light of those days. And notice that Jesus points out three different things here that are going to characterize those days. And in each case, he tells his disciples how to respond to these things. And whilst Jesus is speaking about a specific event and period in history, Nonetheless, of course, these things do apply to us as well. There are lessons for us to learn about what it means for us as God's people to live in the world today. And so first of all, Jesus says that those days are going to be characterized by false teachers. History is, of course, littered, isn't it, with people who have claimed to be the Christ. People who have claimed to be Jesus come back again people who have claimed to have some special insight about when exactly the second coming is going to be, when the end of the world is going to be. And clearly, things were no different in the first century. Jesus says that many would come in his name saying, I am he. The time is at hand. In those tumultuous days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus says all sorts of charlatans would crop up and they would try and gather a following by making these claims about themselves and about what they knew concerning the future. These types of false teachers tend to crop up more often when things are in turmoil, don't they? Jesus is saying there will be much false teaching, many false teachers in those days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's for that reason that Jesus gives this piece of wise advice to his followers. He says, see that you are not led astray. Do not go after them. Jesus is saying to them, if some teacher comes on the scene declaring that he is the Christ, come back again, or that he knows for certain sure that the end of the world, or the end of the age is gonna take place on such and such a date, or within a certain amount of time, simply ignore them says Jesus. He is a false teacher. And it is very easy to see how this teaching applies for us as well, isn't it? Because still, 2,000 years later, we have the same kinds of teachers. They fill arenas and they occupy television channels. They spread their teaching across the internet and so forth. And some of them are clearly bonkers. You just need to watch them to see that. But some of them are very persuasive. Some of them can be very convincing. And the telltale sign is the fact that they claim to have some special information that hasn't been revealed to the rest of us in scripture. They have some extra insight, some special word that only they can tell you about the end of the world or such like. Jesus says here, be on your guard against teachers like that. See that you're not led astray. Do not go after them. And then secondly, Jesus says that these days leading up to the destruction of the temple are going to be marked by great upheaval. That's in verses 9 to 11. Jesus speaks there, doesn't he, of wars and tumults and nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes and famines and pestilences and so forth. And as Jesus spoke these words, the Roman Empire had been enjoying a long era of peace. And yet fast forward about 40 years and things would look very different. In fact, at one point, the Roman Empire had four different emperors within the space of a single year. There would be much political upheaval going on in the world in those days, says Jesus. And not only that, but also the natural world would be in upheaval as well. Jesus mentions there would be earthquakes, there would be famines, pestilence, and so forth. These would be days of great upheaval in every sense. And it wasn't a sign that the world was about to end. These things must first take place, but the end will not be at once, says Jesus. But nonetheless, Jesus is taking the opportunity to tell these disciples that they would witness this great upheaval going on all around them, political upheaval, military upheaval, international upheaval, and even natural, meteorological upheaval? How should they respond to living in a world like that, a chaotic world, a world in turmoil? Well, Jesus says in the middle of verse nine, do not be terrified. Do not be terrified. I like how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, faith and panic are never happily married. And yes, the world around them may be in chaos, but they must remember that God is still in control. He's still working his purposes together throughout history. He's still working for their good. And so even when there is great upheaval in the world all around them, do not be terrified, says Jesus. Trust in God. Again, we can apply... Jesus' advice to the disciples, to ourselves, can't we, living in our days? And the world around us is still characterized by these same things. There are still wars and tumults and rumors of wars. Nation still rises against nation. Natural disasters still devastate the world. And It doesn't necessarily mean that the world is about to end very soon. The second coming is, is just around the corner. It could happen. But these things don't necessarily imply that. So don't listen to those who who say that they're ever so sure that Jesus is about to return because of something that they've seen on Sky News or whatever. No, these things must happen first. The end does not come all at once. But Jesus' words apply to us, don't they? As we live in a world of upheaval, Jesus says, "Do not be terrified." Even when the world seems to be in chaos, even when the circumstances of your own life seem to be falling apart, Jesus says, Don't be terrified. God is still in control, He is still working his purposes together, He's still working for your good. And so trust him in this. And then the third and the final characteristic of those days, says Jesus, would be persecution. And that's in verses 12 through to 19. I want you to notice here that there are three different types of persecution that Jesus mentions. Uh, To start with, there is religious persecution. So Jesus says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And so here Jesus is speaking about how the Jewish authorities would persecute the early church as the apostles preached the gospel in Jerusalem and at the temple, of course, and then throughout Judea and in synagogues in other places throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As the gospel went out to the Jews, and to the Gentiles as well, they would face a great deal of persecution from their hearers. They would be arrested, they would be put on trial and put in prison. So there would be religious persecution, says Jesus, but also there would be political persecution as well. And Jesus continues, you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And in particular, the Roman Empire would in time flex its muscles against the early church. The apostles, and of course most notably the Apostle Paul, would have the opportunity to speak in front of kings and governors for the sake of Christ's name. There would be persecution coming from political powers as well as religious ones. And then a the third kind of persecution that they would face would be what we might describe as social persecution. Jesus describes that, doesn't he, in verses 16 and 17. He says, You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And for the sake of the gospel, Christ's followers would even face opposition from some of their own family members. They would face opposition from pretty much anyone in the society that surrounded them. All types of people would turn against the church. The church would find themselves marginalized within society, looked down upon. Some of them, says Jesus, would even be put to death. And of course, we only need to open Luke's next volume, don't we, the book of Acts, to see the truth of what Jesus is saying here, the way in which that early church faced all of these kinds of persecution from religious and political and social quarters. And again, of course, we live in a different century and in a different place to the one that Jesus is speaking about in the first instance here. And yet, nonetheless, we can relate to these things, can't we? And maybe it is the case that you've experienced some kind of social persecution, to some extent, at least. Maybe not to the extent to which Jesus is speaking here, but in a real sense, nonetheless. And that is that maybe members of your own family or some of your friends, they just make fun of your faith. They exclude you in some way. You feel on the margins of things. Or people at school or at work ridicule you for being a Christian. Or in society in general, we see the church mocked and criticized. Now, it might be at a low level in our circumstances, but it is a form of social persecution, isn't it? And of course, in other parts of the world, it is far worse than anything we experience here. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world face much more extreme forms of religious, political, and social persecution. Some of them put to death. It is a daily reality that the church faces, isn't it? How do you respond to living in a world like that, a world where persecution is always a possibility? Well, again, there's advice that Jesus has here for his followers. And notice that there are two pieces of advice that Jesus offers to his followers as they face persecution, as they face opposition from all quarters of society. First of all, in verses 13 to 15, Jesus says, With his help, take the opportunity to witness. With his help, take the opportunity to witness. Jesus says, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. It's very striking, isn't it, that Jesus describes persecution not as a threat but as an opportunity for the church. Of course, it is a threat as well, but Jesus describes it here as an opportunity. He says this is the opportunity that you can speak to those around you about the gospel, even speak to those who are persecuting you about the gospel. That sounds very scary, doesn't it? And yet notice that Jesus promises here that his people will not be left on their own as they seek to do this. They don't have to witness in their own strength. No, Jesus says that he himself will be with them by his spirit. And he will give them a mouth and wisdom. He will guide his people. He will use them in his purposes, in sharing the gospel, even with those who are hostile. That's encouraging for us to hear, isn't it, whenever we face hostility or opposition from those around us. This is an opportunity we've been given to witness to them. And as we do so, the Spirit of Christ is with us to help us, with with his help, take the opportunity to witness, to speak for Christ. And then last of all, the, the last bit of advice that Jesus offers to his disciples here is there in verses 18 and 19. By Christ's strength, endure. By Christ's strength, endure. Mm. And so Jesus says, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now this is maybe a surprising thing for Jesus to say because of course in the previous verses, Jesus has just said, hasn't he, that some of his followers will even be put to death. And it should make us ask, well, how can Jesus say in the very next breath, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And of course, what Jesus means here is that ultimately, despite any opposition, and suffering and persecution ultimately nothing will separate us from his love not tribulation nor distress nor persecution nor famine nor nakedness nor danger nor sword nor indeed anything else in all creation Yes, the church will face persecution and terrible persecution on occasions. But there is a promise here, isn't there? That as they trust in Christ, he is watching over them, sustaining them, preserving them, carrying them through, giving them the endurance that they need to keep going and to keep speaking for Christ and living for Christ in a hostile world. And that by that God-given endurance, they will gain their lives. What a great promise that is to us, uh, to comfort us and to encourage us as we face opposition from the world around in whatever form that may take, whether it's religious or political or social persecution. That those who, by Christ's strength at work within them, endure through that persecution and that opposition, they will gain their lives. That is, they will enter finally into the full benefits of their salvation in the end. Life in all of its fullness, forevermore with our Saviour. Let's pray together as we close. Our Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus which we've spent our time this evening focusing upon and in which Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple and the events surrounding that and what life will be like in those days and in the midst of it all teaches his disciples how to live in days like that and we thank you that his words are so relevant to us even now 2,000 years later And we still live in a world where there is false teaching and there is great upheaval and there is much persecution. And so we pray that as we live in this age, prior to the second coming of Christ, that you would help us to put into practice what Jesus says to us here. Help us not to follow after any false teachers or false teaching. Help us to see that your word alone is sufficient Give us discernment to a spot when we're hearing a teacher who is speaking at odds with your word. And help us not to be terrified even when all around us is in turmoil, even when our life itself may be in turmoil. Help us not to be terrified because we know that you are the God who is still in control of all things. Help us to trust you in the midst of even the most difficult days that we face. Give us that faith, that trust in Christ. And whenever we face opposition or persecution in whatever form that may take for us, we pray that you'd help us to take the opportunity to witness, even though that is such a difficult thing to do at times. Give us the help we need to witness, even to those who are against us. And help us to endure. Help us to keep going not through our own strength, but by Christ's strength within us. And as we endure, assure us of the eternal life that is ours in him. Our Father, we pray all of these things in the strong and the precious name of your Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.